Hi everyone, this is Joe Bianco, co-producer of the Defining Moments podcast. In September of 2013, today's guest, Spencer Smith, was settling into a new job teaching high school in Detroit. Spencer had recently graduated from Ohio University's Honors Tutorial College, summa cum laude, and was at the start of what promised to be an exceptional career in education. I can say that with confidence because I knew Spencer well, having had the privilege of serving as his undergraduate thesis advisor. But just one month later, in October 2013, everything changed. Spencer was hit in a near-fatal car accident and sustained life-threatening injuries, including a ruptured spleen, collapsed lung, broken ribs, collarbone, and pelvis. Even more concerning, brain scans revealed widespread bleeds throughout his brain. Doctors initially doubted that Spencer could survive. After multiple surgeries and a medically induced coma to control swelling in his brain, Spencer showed signs of improvement. It became clear that Spencer would survive the accident, but he wasn't expected to recover from his traumatic brain injury. Doctors predicted that he would spend the rest of his life in a nursing home. He was 22 years old at the time. Fast forward to today. Spencer holds two master degrees in education and is close to earning his doctoral degree in the philosophy and history of education at Ohio State University. In the years since his accident, Spencer has authored eight peer-reviewed publications, including two Defining Moments essays featured in Health Communication. He has taught numerous undergraduate and graduate-level courses in education, presented his work at national conferences, and along the way, he co-founded Smith Brain Connections, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating healthcare professionals about the unique care and needs of persons with traumatic brain injury. And on top of all that, Spencer recently got married. Spencer is here today to talk about his journey from the accident to the present day, to discuss his recovery and treatment, and to share his experience living with the often invisible effects of traumatic brain injury. Spencer, I am so glad to have you with us today. Well, thanks. It's, it's great to be here with you. It's interesting to revisit this part of my life as a PhD candidate now, after years of work in the TBI community. I'm excited to continue this conversation about my recovery and our work with you today. That's great. I, I just couldn't be happier. We go way back, Spencer, and... Um, so this one is pro both professional but personal for me. So it's so great to have you. And I'm excited to say that there are more guests joining us today. In addition to Spencer, we have four special guests today, each of whom has played an essential role in Spencer's rehabilitation and recovery. First, I'm excited to introduce Spencer's parents, Brad and Terry Smith, co-founders of Smith Brain Connections. Brad is the treasurer and Terry serves as secretary. Welcome, Brad and Terry. Brad and I thank you for having us today. And we really appreciate the opportunity to talk about Spencer's recovery and his story and talk more about our nonprofit. I'm excited about that too. Next, we have Ty Smith, Spencer's brother. Ty is the driving force behind Smith Brain Connections. He's both co-founder and president of Smith Brain Connections and as we'll learn, Ty guided Spencer through every single step of his recovery and rehabilitation. Ty, it's great to have you here today. It's good to be here. Um, I don't know if I would self-designate as the, the driving force behind Smith Brain Connections, <laughs> but definitely appreciate that title. 
Um, we're really hoping that today is an impactful conversation for the medical community, and we're hoping to provide some insights on how traumatic brain injuries really affect the individual as well as uh, the families involved, and then also the importance of family involvement in TBI care. We're also excited to share some of the, the current projects our families nonprofit is working on to help increase the education of medical providers on traumatic brain injuries. Thanks. Yeah, it, promise to be, it promises to be a really exciting um, episode. Thank you, Ty. And then our final guest is Dr. Sheetal Bavishi, Medical Director of the Brain Injury Program at Ohio State University's Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Bavishi specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation and treated Spencer when he was transferred to OSU after his initial injury. Dr. Bavishi is also a board member of Smith Brain Connections, and in that capacity, she has developed extensive training programs to educate healthcare professionals on traumatic brain injury. Dr. Bavishi, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been such a pleasure to work with uh, Spencer, Spencer's family and Smith Brain Connections and really be able to bring um, a lot more light and education in brain injury, not only to the population, but also to the healthcare professionals. It's great to have you here. And uh, in the spirit of full disclosure, I am also a proud board member of Smith Brain Connections too. Very um, invested in the good work that this organization does. So let's let's start with you, Brad and Terry. Going back to 2013 to Spencer's accident, you received the original call, and you managed his care in the ICU, and you were with him throughout his hospitalization and and beyond. You were told that Spencer would not recover from his injuries. Unfortunately, neither of you accepted that. Can you talk about that experience and how you navigated Spencer's care in the face of such a grim prognosis? Uh, yes, the, as you know, the the um, the initial prognosis was very poor, um, and we were told um, patients with this uh, traumatic brain injuries do not recover. Um, so that was real hard to hear, and it was even more difficult to communicate this to Ty. Um, so we kind of waited to hear more information before we had to let him know because he was about four to five hours away. Um, but really, this this type of um, traumatic effect uh, affects the whole family. And we definitely felt that. Um, even through Spencer's prog prognosis uh, was very poor, uh, we believed uh, that he would recover. Whether that was denial or being naive or even not willing to accept it. Uh, but we, you know, we know Spencer, we know he wouldn't, would want to fight. Uh, so while, while he was in the ICU, we pushed the doctors uh, to push Spencer a little bit more um, and to try to get him to do things on his own. Um, they wanted to put a trach in, in him and uh, he was still on the respirator and still in um, drug-induced um, coma. And so we wanted them to take him more off the drug-induced um, coma and see if he um, could breathe on his own. And they were willing to accept that and try that. And, um, of course, he was doing great and started breathing on his own without any trouble. 
Um, then a few days later, um, they wanted to put a feeding tube in them. You know, once again, I, I, you know, we were asking maybe, you know, we could try to see if you know, we could do something different on that. And they were kind of anxious about trying to get that done. Um, but the nurse gave him a few ice chips and he crunched on them and swallowed, swallowed them without any trouble. Um, and, and the funny thing is the, the residents were at the foot, foot of his bed with the papers for us to sign for to put the, uh, the food, um, um, you know, the food uh, tube in. So it was kind of neat that they were all standing there and, and they were amazed what Spencer was doing and um, being able to do some of this stuff on his own. So that's kind of some of the things we were going through just try to push them a little bit. And the interesting thing is all this happened in the ICU. And so he, of course, progressed more rapidly than they had originally thought, which put us in a difficult position about his care because um, initially they told us that he would need to go to a long-term care nursing facility and when he started to progress and do these things on his own, there was talk that maybe he could be moved to another facility. And we just thought the medical professionals would know what that facility would look like or where he would need to go. And we found out that they really didn't know. And so we began to use some of our contacts, uh, healthcare contacts in the Ohio area. And uh, we found someone that knew someone that had had a child that had a TBI a couple of years before Spencer. And they said, you really need him to get to the rehab facility at Ohio State called Dodd Hall. And so uh, we kind of back channeled it a little bit and were able to get him moved to the Wexner Center at Ohio State in hopes that we could get him into the rehab facility that was specifically for TBIs. And we know that not all families have the kind of resources that we had and the kind of contacts that we had to move him into a space that was going to be helpful for his recovery. And we also know that Spencer's recovery would have been completely different had he been moved to a long-term care nursing facility versus the rehab facility at Ohio State. It was good that you were both persistent. I remember at the time, Brad, you were updating Facebook. Um, you would supply some updates about Spencer's progress. And we were here in Athens, all of us who knew Spencer were kind of living for those updates. And Brad, you had this great um, Facebook post where you said, well, Spencer's making all sorts of progress that the doctor said he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> You have to kind of know me too. I think um, a lot. I loved it. A lot of that was uh, I was I was always saying really positive things, and um, I think it was a way of of uh, tricking maybe myself or uh, trying to make um, I don't know putting the positive vibes out there. I guess mm -hmm. and and like I said, I might have been in denial about the the the, the severity of the injury. And, um, so everyone said, Oh, it sounds like he's doing great. And, and it was, it was some rough times. Um, but yeah, I, I was always very positive uh, of the, uh, Facebook, Facebook posts. 
And they, they, you know, as you know, they come up on your timeline. Like, and I, I read those and I go, oh my gosh, that's, that's when we were going through this, you know, that kind of thing. And um, so, so it's kind of neat to see some of those things um, now. <laughs> <laughs> and in that particular post, though, you did mention that his tubes, the breathing tube was taken out. So that, that, that was more than just positive. It sounds like you and Terry were right. You may not have known why you were right at the beginning to say that there's more for Spencer. You may not have had the medical knowledge, but you were his parents and you knew and guided him through. And I think um, where Spencer is today kind of proves you correct. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. Yes. I'd like to talk to you, Ty, a little bit. You're Spencer's younger brother. There's this beautiful clip on the Smith Brain Connections website that shows Spencer lying in the hospital bed and he's rubbing your head and you're kind of kneeled down by the bed and he's smiling and it was so obvious that he derived so much comfort from seeing you. But what was it like for you, Ty, to see your older brother who you and your friends called Spencer uh, out of sort of reverence for his wisdom. What was it like seeing him in that state? It was very, very difficult. Um, so even thinking about it and talking about that time of our lives is still really hard um, to this date, even though we're seven, eight years post-accident. Um, Spencer is someone that I've always really looked up to. Um, I've always turned to him uh, to advice. Even my, my friends growing up would turn to him to advice, which is why we coined the, the Spencer um, terminology off of all the wisdom that he would bestow upon us. Um, and I remember seeing Spencer in the ICU for the first time and remember how harrowing it really was to see him hooked up to all these machines. You have this person who was so full of life, someone that was so full of wisdom and someone that was always willing to put others first. And I just remember the haunting sounds of the beeping of the machines that were essentially keeping Spencer alive at that point. It all felt very surreal to me. Um, I don't think that anybody is really equipped to fully process that type of prognosis or that type of um, seeing really, um, seeing it for the first time. If you're not in the healthcare field, you don't really know what to expect. Um, I remember, so I'm very naturally quiet by nature, but I remember um, the healthcare workers that were attending the Spencer, they would often comment about how quiet I was. But really in that scenario, what can you say as someone that you, you've, you've loved your entire life, someone that you've looked up to your entire life, and you don't even know if they're going to make it through the night. Um, there's no words to really express that. I remember there was my own internal struggle um, through his recovery process where I was in college at the time. I was playing football um, and I was trying to balance the schoolwork and, and my um, responsibilities for football. And I would have conversations with my parents about the fact that Spencer was in a near fatal condition five hours away from me. I couldn't do anything to help, but we also knew how important education was and is and always has been to Spencer that I wanted to continue the education, but I couldn't get that permission from Spencer to be for him to say, yes, of course, I want you to continue your education. So there was always that internal back and forth struggle that I felt like I wasn't doing enough for Spencer. 
And it's actually really interesting that you bring up the video of him rubbing my head um, in the hospital bed um, because it may have been comforting for him, but to me, it was my older brother comforting me in a time of need, which I really needed. Um, and through his recovery process, I almost saw a switch of the older brother role. So um, if you think about an older brother um, looking after a younger brother, he, he got to see me um, in all stages of life. He got to see me taking my first steps and learning how to talk and learning how to be the person I am today. And it was almost that reversal of the role model behavior. And it was really hard for me at first um, because I would go, I was going from the, the pestering little brother that was always annoying to just wanting the best for him and trying to protect him. And I was seeing those same milestones that um, you would see in a, a younger brother, but it was my older brother and he was 22 at the time, which was um, very, very difficult to me. Hmm. Well, you ended up playing a major role, though, for Spencer in his in his recovery. And Spencer, if we fast forward a bit to about two months after the accident, um, I want to talk about a scene you describe in your recent article in Health Communication. You mentioned that the first time you went out in public at this point, um, two months after the accident, without your parents, the first time you went out without your parents was with your brother Ty and his friends and you went to the mall. You wrote that you had significant retrograde amnesia. You wrote that you encountered the world nearly anew every day. For listeners who haven't read the article yet, and for those who don't understand the sort of internal experience of a person who's fresh off of a traumatic brain injury, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so it was very weird I didn't have a continuous sense of self from day to day. So I would wake up every day and it was like I was in an entirely new dream. And I didn't completely understand who I was or how I got there. And so at this time, when I went to the mall, I, I was just starting to build that continuous self. And it was, it was something that I was experiencing anew every time I was there. And so just things like the sensory overload. So I was seeing things and hearing things and smelling things, you know, all of those uh, for the first time, what seemed like the first time to me. And that was really like overstimulating. And so it was really important, I think, to have uh, my brother and our friends uh, there and just to ask them like, how am I in the world? How is Spencer in the world? So I would like pick up a shirt and be like, is this something that Spencer would buy? Uh, and, and things like that were helping me remind myself of that continuous self. And I just want to add um, a little bit to that, that mall trip. Um, so that mall trip was really, um, you could see Spencer trying to find himself again. Um, so Spencer had mentioned about like holding up a shirt and saying, is this something that I would normally buy or is this something that I would normally like? And um, after our, our friends and myself would hype him up for it, um, you could still see that decision paralysis on his face, that there was that disconnect on um, us telling him that, yes, that is something that you would typically buy or typically like, but him not fully realizing that that's 
him. Um, there was like that disconnect between the past and the present and the future self there, which is really interesting. Um, and this was also um, being the first trip out. It was it was very scary as well. So um, typically when you go into a mall, there's like a double sliding automatic door. And if you get too far behind the person in front of you, the door starts to automatically close, but then it opens back up before you get hit by it. Um, but I remember Spencer was walking a little bit ahead of us and I guess he had fallen too far behind the person in front of him and the door started to close and the three of us kind of lunged forward to get the, the motion sensor to set it off so the door wouldn't close on him. Um, but we were just so scared of him um, being injured by the outside world again that we kind of just enclosed around him to be his bodyguards for the day um, to try to protect him. And Spencer wrote about that really eloquently in the article about how how protective you were and how he remembered at the time or could at least recognize at the time that he was in good hands and that he was safe, as bewildering as that situation was internally. This would be a good time um, to talk a little bit more about traumatic brain injury and rehabilitation. So Dr. Bavishi, you're one of a relatively small number of physicians who's trained in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Can you tell us about your training and how you treat patients with traumatic brain injury and, and also maybe comment a little bit on the experience Spencer had earlier on in the mall, um, whether that's typical, whether there's a lot of variability? Sure. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very interesting field of what I work in. Um, you know, the a lot of what I do um takes has a neurology background to it to understanding the brain function, but um some also has uh the rehab or functional background on how do I make someone more functional. So uh someone that does physical medicine and rehab is actually known as a physiatrist and our training entails um, you know, intern year and a three-year residency, so a total of four years post-medical uh, school. And then from that, we can actually sub subspecialize in different areas and uh, do fellowships. So I, I did a fellowship in brain injury and polytrauma uh, through the Veterans Administration. And so, you know, with the, you know, the signature injury of the, the recent conflict we had with brain injury, with all of the increase in um, information about brain injury and concussion specifically through sports and the NFL. Um, you know, there's been a lot of focus over the last several years on brain injury, um, not only, you know, in the healthcare world, but also in the media. And there's a lot of, um, you know, myths out there, but there's a lot of truths. And one of the big things from a physical medicine and rehab standpoint what we do is we look at how patients are injured, um, what some of their disabling conditions are, and really we focus on function. Our real goal is to get people back into the community, getting back into functioning members of society, getting, back, getting them back into achieving their goals. Some of the goals could be as small as, you know, I just wanna walk to five guys and order a burger, and some could be as large as what Spencer's in, you know, encountered and uh, set out in getting a PhD. So really from the physiatrist or the physical medicine rehab standpoint, we want to give patients who have suffered injuries um, the tools and the ability to get back to achieving their goals. 
And a lot of what I do is really um, to focus on the medical, which is a lot of the neurological aspect and really look at recovery from that standpoint. What areas of the brain were injured? How do they function? What do they control? And how can I affect those areas? And I can affect those areas in multiple different ways, um, not just from medications, but also from rehabilitation. So I work with a group of specialized therapists in physical, occupational, and speech therapy, but also in rehab psychology. And we have additional therapies with music therapy, recreation therapy, all of them are focusing on that neuromuscular re-education. So really working on things um, to help people relearn everything. So um, what everyone's been talking about today between Brad, Terry, Ty, and Spencer, really you know, having Spencer relearn how to function and do everything for himself from you know, just getting out of bed to walking down the hallway to brushing his teeth to communicating, to, to coming up with those words, to be able to, um, you know, communicate his basic thoughts and needs, and then to be able to make decisions. And um, so a lot of that takes a specialized group of folks to um, really kind of surround an individual and give them their expertise and knowledge and to really help them rehab. And then from the medicine, you know, from the physician standpoint, I'm really focusing on keeping the person healthy but also looking at, you know, what are there medications out there that can help with recovery and function? Are there things that I can do to prevent uh, complications uh, from the brain injury or from anything else? Um, And so really when I think of someone that's had a brain injury, I think of the brain as the computer hard drive for the body. And when the computer hard drive gets a virus, it doesn't work perfectly after you fix it, but you can use it and you can get it to be functional. And that's my goal is really, you know, the, the brain controls everything in the body, every process in the body, and really assessing where the individual's injured, how it's affected them, and how to continue to improve them and uh, get them to be as functional as possible within the goals that they've set out, you know, and no goals are too small. You know, if someone tells me that they want to earn their PhD, then we say, okay, let's figure out how we can make it happen. Um, you know, we're always, I always uh, joke around that physical medicine rehab doctors are the eternal optimists. Um, but when, you know, we hear Terry and Brad, um, you know, talk about the physicians in the ICU and, and the early on, the emergency room physicians telling them someone can't survive. Um, you know, we, we think of our different specialties and we always plan for the worst, but we always hope for the best. And the hope for the vet, the best is actually the physiatrist as we come in and we start talking about, um, no, we really can do this. We can make this happen. It won't be perfect and it won't be, uh, you know, a sprint. It'll be a marathon to get there, but we'll get it. We'll get there. So it's a lot of fun what I get to do, but it does take a lot of time and it takes a lot of understanding who the person is. And that's really actually fun for me too, because I really get to know my patients. I get to know their families. I get to know um, all of their goals. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a really fun specialty to be in. It, it does. I love the computer hard drive analogy. And I love the, the optimism because we don't always see optimism in medicine. We don't always think of optimism when we think about traumatic brain injury. And, but certainly Brad and Terry knowing their son and advocating for him is a sort of a form of uh, optimism in that sense, but also 
based on their knowledge and and then to have a physician come and support that and say yes we are we're going to try to get him back as to the best that we can is probably very meaningful um especially given that there were so few physicians that really understood traumatic brain injury at a basic level before yeah and that's one of the big focuses is really um getting the knowledge out there for brain injury you know we've been doing brain injury medicine for a really long time but all of our medicine in brain injury was really um, anecdotal it was what um, the previous physicians saw worked so really when we think of you know going into residencies and fellowships it's really like an apprenticeship and you're really learning from your you know supervisors and your more experienced doctors now, because we've had so much focus on TBI, there is a lot more research going into brain injury management and um, you know different aspects of it, like sleep trouble, cognitive issues, and things like that. Uh, but we didn't really have the evidence-based. And so because we didn't have the evidence-based, a lot of it wasn't being taught in medical school. Um, I remember going through my first and second year in medical school where we learn all of the basic sciences and I went through my neurology book and didn't really learn about traumatic brain injury or concussion. We re I really learned about, you know, the areas of the brain and what they did from a functional standpoint, which is the science of it, but I didn't really un learn the medicine of it. And then going into our third and fourth year of medical school where we're in clinicals, um, it's physical medicine rehab is not a, it's not a mandatory um, um, rotation. You know, our mandatory rotations are things like internal medicine and neurology and surgery and things like that. But really, physiatry is something that those that have an interest in it have to go out and seek it. And if you don't know about it, then you don't know to go out and seek it. So it's not something that's taught readily. Um, and then when people you know, are, are injured and especially they come to the ERs and then if they're a milder head injury, like a concussion and they're sent home right away and they don't go to an inpatient rehab or they don't go to a physiatrist, their family practice doctors are really taking care of them with minimal knowledge on how to manage all of the, all of the different things that can happen from brain injury. So there is definitely a, a paucity of education for, um, you know, physicians out there on brain injury. It's improving, but it's still not the, you know, one of the bigger um, pieces of uh, information or um, rotations or um, lectures even that, re that the medical students are getting. So when they go into residency and residency is really where you subspecialize in whatever your interests are, um, they may not get any exposure to brain injury if they're not in a level one trauma like Ohio State or um, and they're in a tertiary care center or not in a tertiary care center. Hmm. I'm curious, um, Dr. Bavishi, about that. What do you attribute the lack of sort of education in medicine when it comes to traumatic brain injury? As you pointed out, there's a lot of education on brain functioning under normal circumstances, probably probably a bit about headache and maybe a little bit about concussion. But then when it comes to traumatic brain injuries, students can't know to go into physiatry if they don't hear about it first. Why do you think that is? 
Well, physiatry is one of those um, specialties that's relatively newer. Um, by that, I mean, you know, in the last 70 years. Um, but, and a lot of people don't understand what it is. But beyond the point of physiatry as a specialty, it's really, I think, the fact that we didn't have the evidence-based medicine for brain injury management. So, you know, when we look at things like cardiac disease, there's a lot of research about that. There's a lot of studies that have been done over the last 30, 40, 50 years on cardiac disease, prevention of it, treatment of it. Uh, we don't have that in brain injury medicine. And if we do, um, you know, I was looking through and teaching articles to my residents and some of the articles I'm teaching are still from the 90s. You know, we don't have up-to-date literature on it because they're just, there wasn't a focus on it. People didn't recognize it as an injury that was significant, even though the CDC data, even from back from 2010, you know, shows millions of people, 3.7 million people having brain injuries every year. And then, you know, billions of dollars in money from, um, you know, state insurance, federal insurances going into managing people with brain injury. It just wasn't something that was funded. Um, recently, though, because of the current conflict, um, you know, or the ending conflict that we've had with OEF and OIF, a lot of money from the DOD has been put into now brain injury uh, research. And so we're getting a lot more funding and knowledge about it. And I think the evidence base is really the key um, because what we try to train in medical schools and across the board is evidence-based medicine. And if we don't have the evidence, then we don't have something to teach. And so I think right that was really why there's not as much teaching on it is because we just don't have, there's just not the knowledge out there, um, but their knowledge is increasing. And the amount of research coming out in brain injury is increasing um, because there's a higher level of funding, not only from the DOD, but also from NIH. And so we are getting more and more information um, about brain injury, how to treat it um, and how to how to manage people long-term. But it's still something that, you know, we start talking about things in the medical world and we start talking about, you know, our board exams and things like that. And they're all, you know, several years behind of where the current research is because it's just the way it has been with, you know, putting together those exams and those things. So the curriculum changes in medical schools are very slow. And as they, as they occur, um, it might take several years to actually get the curriculum changed to add certain things that we now have more data on. Spencer, you as a patient, even maybe before you could articulate this, noticed this lack um, before you were in Dodd Hall. And you've talked about how sometimes physicians you encountered or other healthcare providers would treat your brain injury as though it were like everyone else's. And yet, all brain injuries are completely unique. And you talked a lot about that in both of the articles you wrote. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how uh, the rehabilitation process went and how that, what you feel like helped you in that process get the you that we all knew back. 
Yeah, so this is an interesting question because I don't remember a lot of the rehab that happened inpatient. And I know that things that happened there that individualized me and that thought about who I was as a person, both before the accident and then like through the accident and through the recovery, that those instances were, were powerful. Um, but I have like, I only have dreamlike memories of, of hallways and the cafeteria and things at Dodd Hall. Um, but my family would know better hmm. about that question. I think the thing that's unique about uh, a rehab facility, at least from what we saw at Dodd Hall, what because Spencer was there as an inpatient, um, in, inpatient rehab for three weeks. And during that time, um, Brad will say that he kind of went through all the stages of infancy up until adulthood, all in three weeks, um, because they had to teach him how to walk and how to talk, um, how to feed himself and all of those things. And I, I think we were really, really lucky. Um, and I think that they do a great job at Dodd Hall. And I'm sure that all the patients, families feel the same way um, because he Spencer had um, therapies twice a day in the three disciplines in physical, occupational, and speech. And typically it was the same therapist that worked with him each day. Um, and so they got to know him because they got to know us and we would talk to them about him. And they were really good about incorporating who Spencer was into his recovery. So for example, like the physical therapist would make a list of what she was going to cover with him that day and what she was going to have him do. And we likened it to his Spencer's teacher's lessons plan. So he gravitated towards that and understood that and was able to um, go through and do the things that she wanted him to do. The occupational therapist knew that Spencer was a writer and that he journaled a lot and um, that he even had a blog when he was in college. And so she used that as a method to try to work with him and do things that were meaningful to him. And even the, the speech um, therapist would work with him and try to incorporate things that we knew about Spencer into the conversations with him so that he was having meaningful conversations with her. And she also allowed, for example, Ty to be in on the sessions, which also was very helpful for Spencer. Yeah, we were all super thankful for um, their willingness to involve the family. So not only from just providing a sense of normalcy from our family, but also I think it was very helpful in, in tailoring the therapy to Spencer, as my mom was mentioning. Um, so I remember sitting in on a speech session um, and it was just kind of like a guided conversation with him because he wasn't very conversational at that point yet. And I remember the speech therapist was um, asking about football since I was playing at the time and asked um, Spencer what position I played. And he said um, he thought I was a linebacker, which was very, very funny because if you could have seen me at the time, I was like 150 pounds soaking wet, definitely could not have tackled um, anyone at that level as a linebacker. Um, and so while it was nice to have that normalcy back in our lives and just have a, a conversation with my brother, it was also 
um, kind of an eye-opening experience in that even though he's come a long way, he still has a very long way to go because he's still not making those connections to his past life um, as as he can do now. Um, and I was also super thankful that they would let us sit in on um, outpatient rehab and be a part of that in which uh, Spencer actually does have some memories of. Yeah, so what Ty said about the frustration of like not being a complete completely back to where I was. That was how it was all the time during outpatient rehab. I was just so frustrated with everything that I was doing because it was all really good. And like, it was helping me get back to where I was, but I wasn't at that level that I expected myself to be at yet. Um, so I'm really thankful to all the therapists and doctors like Dr. Pavishi who worked with me for getting me back to that level. And it sounds like the role your family played was huge, almost, you know, part like an essential part of your care team because they can provide that information about you, who you were, even as a person, um, while the rehabilitation specialist could help you gain functionality. But the role of family, I think, in in the treatment of TBI sounds essential. Yeah, and that is 100 percent the case. We, you know, we currently are doing a lot of research and our TBI model systems at OSU is doing a a study on patient-centered care and really looking at the patients and their goals, but also learning about them. And when a patient can't talk to us and tell us about who they are, we really look at the family. And, you know, when I also talk to people about of treating someone with a brain injury. I'm not just treating the patient, I'm treating their entire family. So it's really helping the family learn how to um, talk to the patients, how to help them understand where they can be helpful. A lot of times families just want to do something for their loved ones. And so teaching them how to do range of motion or balance or strength things or how to talk about things or play some different games that can help them really gets everybody involved. Um, Yes, we have the professionals that work with the patients because of their education and training, but really the biggest part of someone continuing to get better is is training their families because everything they do after a brain injury, whether it's as small as going to the mall, is, you know, a a therapy for them and really helping families know how to maneuver those areas too can really help. Um, and make families feel like they don't have to overprotect their loved one and they can take them places and they can do things with them. Hi folks, this is Joe breaking in for just a second. We've been talking with Spencer, Ty, Brad, and Terry Smith, and with Dr. Shidal Bivishi, all of whom are part of Smith Brain Connections. Smith Brain Connections, Inc. is a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating healthcare professionals about traumatic brain injury. You can learn more by visiting their website at smithbrainconnections.com and by reading Spencer's recent health communication article that accompanies this episode. For your convenience, we have placed links to recently published articles and health communication on our Facebook page. Okay, back to the conversation.
want to quickly ask before we move on to Smith Brain Connections, which I'm excited to talk about, but um, Terry and Brad and Ty, were there any moments at any point in Spencer's recovery and rehabilitation where you started to see signs of Spencer coming back, the Spencer that you knew? Um, yeah, there there was quite a few. I mean, there were some early and there, there were some, of course, at Dodd, Dodd Hall. Uh, but even early signs in, while we're in the ICU, um, Spencer would be be hitting his leg and and rubbing his forehead. And a lot of the doctors would say, you know, that that is from his, his TBI. And that, you know, and maybe that is true. Maybe that's what TBI patients sometimes do. Um, but that's what he did all the time anyways. <laughs> um, he would, he would always rub his head and, and of course he had, um, you know, the, the, uh, the shunt in his head to, to relieve the pressure. So we were trying not to let him rub his head and he would hit his leg and, and doctors would say, you know, that's from his TBI. That's a tick. And I go, no, that's he does that all the time anyways. Um, so I think that that was when I knew that he was there. Um, and then even later on, um, he wrote, he was writing before he was communicating before he was verbal. And some, sometimes it made sense. Sometimes it didn't make sense, but I always saw him looking at the whiteboard across the room and he wrote a couple things down with explanation marks. And it was something the nurses wrote that wasn't, um, I don't know, when correct, or they weren't really looking at that. Um, so that's kind of, that comes back to his teaching, you know, and, you know, making sure it was correct. And he was getting really kind of excited about that. Like you read the whiteboard, you know, that's <laughs> so, so that was his teacher coming out of him. So that's kind of what I, I saw when things were changing in the ICU. And also why he was in the ICU, he, had this thing where he wanted to put everything in his mouth and he wasn't eating at that point. And so of course they didn't want everything in his mouth. And so one of the nurses told us that we should sit on either side of the bed and hold his hands down. And then that way they wouldn't have to restrain him and that we could just be there at kind of as a calming um, effect for him. And I happened to be on his right side and his right side, he was a lot stronger because he had been hit on his left side. So Brad and I would change off every once in a while because it was really difficult to keep his right hand down. And um, so he was really pressing me to put his hand up and I was really trying to keep it down. I was using both my hands and trying the hardest. And I just finally gave up and thought either he's going to take a bite out of my hand or he's going to take a bite out of his hand or something. So I just let it go. And he took my hand really gently and he kissed the back of my hand. And then he just laid my hand down and he was fine. And I think it, for me, even though I was seeing these other things that Brad just described, it was that moment that I knew that the Spencer that I knew was in there. And we just had to help him recover to a place that he could be. Yeah, Spencer has always been a very affectionate person. So he's always um, the one that's going to be the first one to hug you. Um, I am not that way. I'm not very affectionate at all. Um, but I remember um, after he got transferred to OSU, but before he was in Dot Hall, we were doing some physical rehab with him and we were um, just walking up and down the hall. And I remember 
once we got back to his room, um, I was holding him. He was kind of using me as support for the, for the walk. And once we got back to the room, he gave me a, a little thumbs up and then he um, wrapped his arms around me and gave me a hug. Um, and at that point I was like, Spencer is still in there. Um, he's trying to comfort me. He um, wants me to know everything's going to be okay. And um, even though I'm not a very affectionate person, it was definitely the best hug I've ever received in my life. I think I also want to answer this question uh, as I talked earlier about how I, I was having trouble disconnect with the disconnect of, of the self through time. And something that gave me a lot of confidence that I was going to return to pretty much the person that I was before the accident was six months after the accident, I took the GRE, the GRE which I had taken before the accident. Uh, but I... This, the second time that I took it, I scored only one point different than when I had taken it nearly a year before. Um, and so this was proof to myself hmm. that I was nearly back to who I was. Hmm. I don't think I was aware of that story, Spencer. That's great. Yeah, and a lot of that came from he didn't know that he took it the first time. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then he took it the second time. Then we found that he did take it the first time, too. So that, I thought that was funny. But but I saw some differences there also at uh, Dodd Hall. I mean, when when we when we got to Dodd Hall, Dodd Hall um, they had a piano there in, at Dodd Hall, and and uh, Dr. Vivici is talking about the music therapy. Um, he actually did this on his own, saw the piano, and walked over to the piano, and we so we brought in some sheet music for him that he used to play at home, and at one time he could only play with the right hand his left hand wasn't working yet or his left arm wasn't working. And then by, by later on, he was using both hands um, and he'd be playing some music for us. So that's when I thought, okay, well now he's, now he's getting his music now he's getting, getting his rhythm going. So um, he was getting things back. So there was um, a point Spencer, when I kind of from afar, I was here in Athens while you were up there, but you were emailing me. And there was a point where I was really excited when I got an email from you to recognize the sense of humor and um, sort of, uh, you know, just that dry sense of humor that you were known for. Um, in February 2014, you were undergoing some neuropsych testing. And uh, because I'm a psychologist, I think you wanted to tell me everything that you were doing. So you emailed and part of what you wrote was this. My assessor read words to me, and I had to spell them. She read words to me, and I had to tell her what they meant. One word was reluctant. I told her it meant to drag your feet on a project. And she said, can you say anything else about it? And I said, I'm reluctant to. Well, when I heard that, I just thought, that's Spencer. That's the Spencer I remember from advising his thesis and perfect setup, hilarious sense of humor. And you recalled everything that you had to do in a neuropsych test, which I also thought was a very good sign. Moving um, forward now, we, this whole process has taught multiple things. Uh, you learn multiple things in this um, entire journey. And what's emerged from it, one of the best things that's emerged from it, is Smith-Brain Connections. Ty, can you tell us a bit about how Smith-Brain Connections formed, the idea for it, and how you mobilized your family and together created this? Of course. So 
the the beginning of it really goes back to that internal struggle I was uh, mentioning at the beginning of this um, conversation and that um, I knew that education was very important to Spencer, um, but I also wanted to be there for him to support him. And so um, I was able to get Smith Brain Connections off the ground as part of my um, neuroscience minor capstone project in college. Um, and we really formed because we knew that we were very fortunate with Spencer's outcomes. We knew that um, every TBI is different, every outcome is different. We knew that a lot of things went nearly perfect for us. Um, there was a lot of things that had to go right in, in order for us to have the outcomes that we have today. And we know that without our family advocating for Spencer and without a, a huge network of great healthcare professionals that were really willing to go the extra mile and learn with us about traumatic brain injuries, we would probably be having a very different conversation today. And so through his recovery process, we found out that there was a very clear disconnect between um, what the experts like Dr. Bavici and what the common healthcare provider knew. Um, and we knew that not everybody needed to be an expert, but we knew that there was um, a, a certain level of education that, that that common healthcare provider needed on, on traumatic brain injuries because it was so alarming to us just the sheer number of TBIs there are every year. Um, and so we really formed to help others, uh, other TBI patients and other families of TBI patients have the highest chance for um, the most successful outcomes. So we know that not everybody's going to have the same outcomes that Spencer has, but um, we'd really be doing them a disservice to not set them up for the opportunity to have that chance of that successful outcome. When you originally proposed Smith Brain Connections as the idea for your capstone project, how was that received, Ty? Um, I think it was very initially received as a senior trying to get out of his capstone project. <laughs> um, but as soon as I, I um, presented my idea behind it and um, the research behind it and how it tied into um, what we were learning in class, I think that they became... Um, a lot more willing to let me explore that, which I was thankful for. And you made good on that. Um, Brad and Terry, maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the current projects and uh, ways in which Smith Brain Connections is working to improve education and care for patients with traumatic brain injury. Well, um, it's it's been a slow go. I can uh, remember uh, the first year that that we started and Ty and I would sit at our kitchen table and we would just call people in the TBI world. And, um, we would talk to these people that were experts in the field and they would all say the same thing to us, which was, yeah, you're right. There needs to be more education, but we don't know how to do it. And, and we're, we kept thinking if they don't know how to do it, how are we going to do it? Um, and so, we kept plodding along and hoping that we would find the right connection. And I think we've, we've done that now with some of the people um, that we've been able to connect with. So um, Spencer and Ty uh, can give some insight into that. So there's essentially two main tracks of work that Smith Brain Connections focuses on. So I'll talk a little bit about the first track. I'll let Spencer talk a little bit more about the second track. Um, but the first track is really educating the current healthcare professionals um, so what that looks like is, is going to brain and injury conferences, telling our story, 
Um, we've also been working very hard to provide continued medical education units for um, current practitioners. Um, and we've been really fortunate. We've been really fortunate with a, a partnership with um, Nationwide Children's Hospital through their Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes, or ECHO series for short, to provide CMEs. And what this is, it's a really a combination of didactics and case-based discussions that aim to increase the clinician's confidence in assessing, caring for, and managing patients with severe TBI. So when you think about what are the basic needs to need to knows of traumatic brain injury and how do you help care for those TBI patients? That's really the focus of the, of the series. And so our, our most recent one was a four-week series where we brought in professionals like Dr. Bravici to talk about their expertise and, and give the need to knows of TBI to help fill in those gaps and um, give patients the care that they, they really need. And then our second track is thinking about how to change the medical education framework to include more TBI training. So like Dr. Bavishi said earlier, there's just not a lot of, of TBI content in a lot of medical education. And so I wrote a white paper illustrating the need for more physicians to be knowledgeable about TBI. And I sent that to the vice president on the board in charge of the United States medical licensing exam. And the correspondence that resulted from that uh, has led to us working with other medical organizations to generate a list of physicians to help write future questions for the exam about TBI. Um, so we're interested in, in being in conversation with medical schools and other institutions to find other ways to insert modules about TBI in their training. As part of this work, I sit on the Education Task Force of the Ohio Brain Injury Advisory Committee. It sounds like a, a, an impressive amount of work already done in an area that where there's endless need. It sounds like you guys have really um, done a lot. And Dr. Bavishi, I know you've, you have taught a lot um, and created modules as well and did case-based um, presentations for a variety of different healthcare providers as part of this. Can you talk about those a little bit? Sure. Um, so some of the things as an educator, so being in, in the world of academic medicine, I do get to interact with a lot of the different uh, specialties around the university, but also um, increasing some of the knowledge uh, across the state too. Um, so I have been giving um, grand rounds. So grand rounds are presentations where um, a physician or someone comes into uh, a, a specialty or department's um, didactics and gives a presentation that's mainly uh, new, new evidence or upcoming research or the latest research. So I have given grand rounds topics for um, our neurology department and neurosurgery departments, uh, but also um, have been involved in some of the um, conferences as well, nationally as well as um, locally. So our TBI summit that we put on through Ohio State um, and our uh, uh, brain health symposia um, giving talks there. 
I also do a lot of medical student teaching. So we do, we have a part of our program and to increase the outreach into the medical student, especially at the College of Medicine, has been to increase the amount of exposure the medical students have to physiatry and to really learning about uh, rehabilitation medicine and specifically, you know, brain injury populations. So we've actually increased the number of medical student rotation slots that we have in our department in order to be able to have more of that outreach and teaching. We've also been giving back to the medical school quite a bit. So they have uh, special interest groups. Um, so it's just like, um, you know, in high school and colleges, they have clubs with different people with different interests. So we've actually had increasing partnership with the, the physical medicine and rehab special interest group at the College of Medicine. And our residents actually um, are, are partnering with that and giving talks as well on different rehab concepts and um, rehabilitation of people with brain injury, spinal cord injury, et cetera. So we've really expanded how much we are trying to educate across the consortium um, from not only different departments, but also within the College of Medicine. And then um, some of my national talks have been um, on, you know, with the American Congress of Rehab Medicine or the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab. So we have, they're more physical medicine and rehab based, but through that has come out um, some different podcasts that I've been able to do. Um, one with the Mind Barian Foundation, which should be coming out soon. Um, I was uh, asked to do a podcast with CNN. Unfortunately, they did not use all of my information, um, but I, I did get to interact with them and it was great and, and to really learn about some of that. And, and another patient that I had actually is doing, um, did that and has written a lot of pieces for CNN about brain injury and recovery. So really helping to support even other patients um, that have the same desire as uh, the Smith family to broaden the education about brain injury and recovery and the processes, um, you know, on, and so a lot of what I've done is really in support of a lot of these different initiatives that are out there, not only from Ohio State, but also from some of our national organizations. That's excellent. And it, it strikes me, going back to an earlier analogy you used, Dr. Bavishi, about um, rehabilitation, it's a um, marathon, not a sprint. And it strikes me that the work that Smith Brain Connections has set out to do in educating physicians, connecting them to more education about traumatic brain injury is a marathon at this state, but you've, you've all contributed so much and gotten so many places straight to the M, um, the USMLE and beyond. So uh, any other projects that uh, you have in store that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, so there's two, the two biggest projects on our horizon that we're most excited about are um, continuing the ECHO series. So we had a lot of positive feedback and engagement from the audience there. Um, so we're looking to refine that current series and tailor it more towards um, the audience that was in attendance and um, the type of healthcare professionals that um, we could reach through, through that type of series. 
Um, and the second thing is we're working to become part of a resident seminar program in Columbus. So tapping into the current learnings and current modules um, and, and providing that high level overview of what, what do you need to know, um, what's going to be most important about, about traumatic brain injuries. That's fantastic. And, and Ty, where can our listeners find out more information about Smith Brain Connections? They can go to www.smithbrainconnections.com. It's spelled exactly how you think it would be. Um, and if there's any listeners that are interested in learning more, um, if there's any questions that they might have for us, or if they're interested in partnering with us for future learnings, there is a contact page on that website and it links directly to my own uh, personal email. Thank you. So as we conclude the episode today, I wanted to know, Spencer, are there any final thoughts or things you'd like our listeners to know? Yeah, so this is interesting. I, I think the important thing is that every TBI is unique. Uh, so by listening to this episode, you know that the experience of the TBI was just for me. Uh, and my story is not the same as any other TBI patient. Uh, but there are certain things that we know and I was put on the path to recovery because I had family advocating for me to be in rehab early on. The good outcomes I had are due to that support and the medical care I received as a result of that advocacy. And so I think that's the, the final thing I, I want our listeners to know. Thanks so much for letting us be here. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have all of you here today talking about this really important topic. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Lynn Harder is the co-producer and Adam Rich is our audio engineer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at dmpodcastwoub. On our Facebook page, we provide links to Spencer's articles in health communication. We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts.